When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll be talking about Everton and their manager Frank Lampard, although it looks like the end of the road after defeat to West Ham United in a big relegation thriller at the bottom of the table. How many goals will Erling Haaland score this season? And can either Liverpool or Chelsea trouble the top four? This is the game. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Clark, Alison Rudd and Tony Cascarino reacting to some big events in the Premier League this weekend. Firstly though, hello. How are you all? How was your weekend? Alison, I'll start with you. Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, it was It was a weekend dominated by bus replacement services for <laughs> getting to Selhurst Park. Spent over four hours on what should be a under two hour round trip. And it was nil-nil. But, uh, you know, I don't complain. It's still a privileged job. Good. What were your reflections on the game? Uh, Newcastle played very well. There you go. Okay. All right. Positivity (laughs) from Alison Rudd on a Monday morning. Tony, good weekend. Watch the football, Um, hopefully. Yes. Yes, I did. And... uh... It was spoiled by two nil-nil draws on Saturday, back to back, two light games. Um, but I didn't get stuck in traffic and have long delays like Alison did. So, yeah, I think it was uh, a good weekend of. Uh, I know we're going to talk about the, the big game at the Emirates, but uh, confirming that Arsenal are really serious challenges, which I think I felt I it's been like that for a number of months anyway. Yeah, let's pick up on that. Arsenal, five points clear uh, with a game in hand at the top of the Premier League after that 3-2 win over Manchester United. Very entertaining game for the neutrals. Uh, Eddie Nketiah scoring twice, including a late winner. Mikel Arteta's side sending another message to those that still don't believe that they can lift the title because I think for many, it was Arsenal's best performance of the season and some stats reflect that. Most touches in the opposition box, most shots, highest expected goals of any game they've played in the Premier League so far this season. Tom, it was a great game. I think it was a very deserved win for Arsenal as well. Um, I know people say Manchester United made a great game, but for me, there was only going to be one winner, if you like. Yeah, I think you're right. Everyone was understandably excited about uh, United's performance because, uh, as we've seen over the last few years, United in these big games tend to either be sit sit deep and park the bus, to use that classic phrase, or try and play on the counter. But they did they tr- they tried to impose themselves on the game uh, in different ways, as they did in the previous week against Manchester City. Um, but you know they they just came up short against an Arsenal team who are so intense and so dominant and. You know, it's not the first time they've done this to a team. Um, so United can take great heart from it in that respect. But I think, uh, as Tony alluded to, and as he and I discussed for his column last week after they beat Tottenham, I think this was another game where Arsenal really said, no, no, this is this is serious now. We are actually title contenders and probably title favourites now after those two performances. I think the Tottenham one had the mix of those two halves of complete, control, cruise control, and then 
you know, really solid. This was obviously a bit more back and forth. But that, as you say, Hugh, you hinted to it there, that relentless nature of that second half where you just felt, even when Martinez equalised for Manchester United, you just felt Arsenal would come again. And it's one of those old cliches, you know, find ways to win when you're not playing well, find late goals in these big games. Arsenal are ticking all those boxes in terms of cliches that we uh, trot out when it comes to big teams winning titles and producing on the biggest stage. So I think these last two weeks... They've shown that they're not just contenders, but they're probably favourites now. I did, I wrote a piece for Saturday's paper about, actually, let's just stop and think. This is the happiest Arsenal fans have been for quite some time. And um, it's it was strange. I, the, the reason famous Arsenal fans said was the Amazon Prime documentary, All or Nothing, about them, which meant was to, to Arsenal fans made them think oh our team worked really hard and we're going to support them come what may I thought oh I can't really can't quite believe everyone's saying it's just knowing how good the backroom staff are and how sweet the young players are has made this happen but it actually was illustrated by this match because I've spent years going to the Emirates and thinking oh if only the fans had some belief they could have got over the line in this game or that game. This game, it, honestly, I think United could have taken a six-goal lead, and they'd have still, they still, they would have still been there with that sense of, this is ours, we can do this. And one little point was, I, I, is this does this happen at any other club? Arteta's very um, animated on the touchline, uh, as we know, gets booked now and again, but. Whenever he gets cross and then he flings his arms in the air and then he turns round, he comes back to the seats. At that very moment, his back group, several members of his backroom staff or his assistants will, at that very moment he turns round, they will run out to the touchline so that there's never a gap in the game where there isn't somebody from the coaching staff cajoling, directing, shouting, whatever. Whereas if you look at any other Premier League club, there will be long periods where there is nobody in the technical area because the manager will be discussing, sat down with an iPad or a pen and paper. And I just wondered if this is like deliberate, that the that unity, which which is the fans give it to them, you could see with the celebrations, the players give it back to the crowd, but the coaching staff are giving it in a way I don't see any other team doing can you I, I I I just don't I go to a lot of grounds I haven't seen it like that yeah there's a few strange things that happen now at Arsenal and you've just touched on one of them I I find the re reaction to when they went one nil down and watching all the players literally go for the fans telling them to lift they're waving their arms up like to lift us and we're going to lift you you're going to lift us and and it, and it was a bit like the previous game they had at the MS they went one nil down and the reaction to going one nil down isn't heads down, jog back, put it back on the centre spot. It's more of a reaction. Let's get these fans right on board again straight away, which is really weird. What was I saw something that was really interesting at one nil down. Martin Erdegaard gave a signal to the rest of the Arsenal players that exactly mimicked the body language of Mikel Arteta. This rotation of his yes, hands, yes, yeah. almost like, now lift it, now lift it, now lift it. But it was it was done in a way that wasn't just to the players, it was also to the fans as well, because his hands were so high in the air. It wasn't just to his teammates, he was kind of saying to the whole of the Emirates, right, 
we're a goal behind. We just need to find the next gear. We'll be back. And and when the goal went in, it was that weird thing of like a, a feeling that they've had before. Like they they knew if we just stick to our game, if we just play to our best, that goal will come. It hit the back of the net, and then everyone was like, "See." We yes. told you, you know, everyone was kind of like, see, there you go, it's clicked. And I think they just took it from there for the rest of the game. Well, Hugh, in, and Al mentioned the all or nothing with Arsenal. And there were some really weird things that happened in, in all the episodes. And, you know, it's the genius already thing you can do sometimes of how it gets reflected back. I remember when they were playing Liverpool and he plays You'll Never Walk Alone as the game's going on in a practice match. Yeah. yeah? Now, that's really weird thing to do. And yet, it was an element of comedy to it, but an also an understanding of this is what it's like to be at Anfield and you're hearing this noise of these fans and you've got to keep performing. That ended up being fans really bought that. They bought now that could have been an idiotic move where people say that's ridiculous doing something like that in a training ground. To actually bring speakers into the training ground and you can imagine all the comedy going on around the training ground around the lads laughing what are the speakers here for why the mm. why you know and I've been in him sort of not as crazy as that but I've been in scenarios where everyone's looking at each other laughing and think really we're doing this today why are we doing and he he's managed to carry that across the line I just think it was brilliant from Arsenal to be perfectly honest obviously as a Manchester United supporter I, you know there are some days where you're disappointed I don't think Man United deserved to win that game I would have taken a point all day long and to be perfectly honest particularly on the balance of play but at 2-2 I was kind of stunned that Man United had even scored twice you know in the first half all right Rashford scores a brilliant goal but Man United had two shots both of them from outside the box and I've got Man United fans messaging me saying we're in the game where it's been 50-50 and I'm like well the possession has but they've had about 11, 12 shots in the first half. They look the far more likely team to go on and, and win this game. And actually, at the end of the game, with the amount of pressure that was put on by Arsenal in the last 25 minutes, half an hour even, they clearly deserve to win that football match. And I think, look, we could talk about Man United if we want, but I think this is far more about Arsenal sending a real positive message on the quality that is there at the moment, because Man United couldn't live with them. All right. There was no depth really on Manchester United's bench, even in the starting lineup. When you're swapping the likes of Casemiro for McTominay, you can see the level drop off. But the journey that Manchester United are on is probably a few seasons behind the journey that Arsenal are on. Arsenal are massively outperforming where we thought that journey would, would bring them after two and a half, three seasons anyway under Mikel Arteta, to the point where now you're thinking 50 points after 19 games. Absolutely incredible basically on for a 100-point season, you know, if, if the consistency stays the same. They have lifted the level to such a high point. They have to be favourites. I mean, I was reading today that the bookmakers only after that game made Arsenal the favourites for the title, which I think is absurd. I'm sure you will know because for a long time, I felt Manchester City are close to Arsenal, really. I mean, they just seem to go and go and go Arsenal. And, to, and, and that game, we saw a couple of players... And the storylines that are going to, you know, help lift the team to a title. Bakayu Saka, who's just turned into a world-class player, basically. Mm. Every week you see him, he seems to get better and better. And the other thing is this, oh no, what are we going to do? Gabriel Jesus into the World Cup, our season's going to derail itself. Eddie Nketiah with two goals, but just his general play since he's been in the team. Yeah, I mean, then they're not going to drop off a level at this point in time. Those two players, Tony, how good were they? Yes, um, you could name four players that could make player of the year for Arsenal. You could certainly say Thomas Partey. Um, you could add in Saka, Odegaard. 
Uh, I would say if he'd have played more games, Shinchenko could have been easily in that because he's performing really well. And do you know what the one thing that keeps bothering me that I keep hearing, and lots of pundits are saying this thing, that I keep thinking, okay, it's a fair point, but flip it on the other side of the coin. Everyone's giving Man City two victories against Arsenal, saying that they can beat them home and away. Well, they can. Well, yeah, they can. <laughs> no, I get that, Al. I, I totally get... Yeah, they can. I mean, you could say that as, as an argument. But you could also say Arsenal could beat them home and away because they're good enough to do it at the moment. Now, if they did, the league's done. They've won the league if they did that. And I think that narrative is that everyone is expecting City to beat Arsenal home and away, which I don't think they'll do. I, I think, genuinely, if they avoid defeat in both the games, they've yeah. won the league. Yeah. And there's a, <laughs> they've yeah. Won the, if they avoid losing both of those games, they've won the league. It's expanding on the point I'm trying to make. Really. Yeah. And in yeah. 10 years' time, when Arsenal have won the league, will we look back and say it was a really pathetic Premier League season and everyone was rubbish apart from one team? He did a funny documentary. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, listen, I was thinking about this yesterday. I mean, again, it's trying to predict the future, but if Manchester City are disappointing in the second half of the season, if Arsenal win it by 12 points, I think because of the nature of the Premier League over the last five years and what Liverpool and Manchester City have, have managed to produce, people will feel like it wasn't that strong a, a league season if, if one team runs away with it. But that's only because we've become accustomed to it being very close and and maybe two teams getting over 90 points, but that should be irregular, really. Mm. And actually, if, if two teams are doing that, probably the league's not that strong. If, if you've got two teams able to get 90, 95, 99, 100 points, then actually the, the, the league can't be that strong. So if Arsenal were the only team that managed to run away with it, it's probably been a stronger Premier League season in many ways because more of the teams are taking points from one another and if Manchester City, with the brilliant team that they have, are struggling, then it suggests it is it is a better um, is a better division in terms of quality. Well, it's a bit of a myth, that argument, because if you look at the history over the Premier League in certainly just shy of a decade, that there's a lot of evidence suggests that the Premier League has been easier to win than some of the other leagues where teams have dropped a number of points, even the most dominant teams in other countries, uh, where... You know, it's a bit misleading because the accumulation of points that City and Liverpool have accumulated is ridiculous in yeah. comparison to two teams in any other league. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Tom, Eddie Nketiah, Bakayu Saka, what did you make of them? Absolutely superb. I mean, Nketiah, understandably, given the context of um, Gabriel Jesus's injury and Arsenal season and the talk around Mudrick not signing and all those kind of things, kind of stealing the headlines this morning. But I thought that before that and for the whole game, Saka was just absolutely staggeringly good. I mean, I think Luke Shaw has been in good form this season. Um, I think he played well for England. I think he's get, Eric Ten Hag is getting a lot out of him. But he was absolutely terrified. I think we've not, obviously not got our resident um, left back on the show today, um, but I'm sure Gregor would agree with me. The way he was backing off and backing off and backing off to the point where if he'd gone any further, he would have ended up next to David De Gea in the goal <laughs> at certain points showed what a level that Saka is playing at at the moment. And that goal, I thought it was fantastic to see English talent playing so well. I thought Marcus Rashford, understandably given Arsenal's victory, won't get as many plaudits. But I thought his goal was a real, wow, what a goal. And then it was just like Saka went, now nah, mate, I can do it better. And that, that, that goal in the second half was absolutely world class. And I think looking at some of the statistics this morning um, provided by Opta, he is right up there this season I'd say Saka in terms of 
the Premier League com- competing with the likes of De Bruyne and Haaland for like real top top level match winning performances um, goals and assists 14 you know for chances created he's right up there in the top 5 it, he really really is He and Tony listed a lot of the players before um, and he's quite right to kind of highlight Odegaard and others for Arsenal but I just think Saka with mm. that star quality as well is just absolutely out of this world this season Tom can I just add something because this is something that happened with um, Will Sahar when he was playing against Wambazaka, and it was highlighted that in training, Wambazaka knew his number. He'd always stop him. And he ended up getting a big move to Manchester United, didn't he? Over the, yep. you know, and because he's handling of one-on-one situations. Now, when you're on international duty, you have obviously practice matches. And it was without doubt, Saka would have come up against Shaw, Luke Shaw, in these practice matches. Because you do that a lot in international duty. Yeah. And I think Luke played... Like he was frightened out of his life. He knew what he was about. He knew that he had played against him in training, that he, he could get the better of him. Luke Shaw deliberately stayed a yard away from him more than most wingers he comes up against because he was giving him way too much time. Instead of getting so tight to stop him, I think he'd, he's had them training sessions coming up against Saka and Saka's got by him and gone either way because you one thing that Saka's got in his locker, you don't know which way he's going to go. Left or right, you just don't. Yeah, I completely agree. And... I think for me, with that in mind, going back to your point, Tony, earlier about Arsenal's player of the year and the general player of the year in the Premier League is Saka for me all the way. And I think actually, just to flip the conversation on its head slightly, I was interested, I mentioned Rashford there. I'd I'd be quite interested to know what you all thought of Anthony's performance for Manchester United because to me, very early days, and I don't want to be the guy who kind of starts writing off big money signings, but I, if I was looking at him in comparison with, say, Lissandro Martinez, who had a difficult start and lots of questions, some of them slightly silly, about his suitability to the Premier League, I think if you looked at his performance in that big game and then compared it to Anthony's two big money signings, two Ten Hag signings, I was a bit underwhelmed by Anthony, I've got to say, and have been at times this season. When you're looking at some of the other players that are around in the Premier League, Sackers and even his teammate Rashford, I wonder whether he's going to be enough of an elite level player to kind of lift Manchester United in these big games because you'd be expecting him to after the money they've spent on Sancho and things. I don't know. Tony, what what have you thought about Anthony's performances so far for United this season? Uh, very circus act type of player. <laughs> um, very much a beach footballer. No purpose to what he's doing. Full of flicks and little tricks that don't really serve much purpose um, and been hugely disappointed because you can quite clearly see he's very gifted technically, but he wants to do so many silly things that are unnecessary that actually doesn't lead to much, which is quite weird. I thought his crossing was terrible, you know, considering that he got half a yard and he'd try and whip in balls that were always either too low or too high. I just thought it was more like a Harlem Globetrotter player performance and no more. <laughs> what he does is he plays like he's playing in a different match or maybe he's playing in a match in his head. He doesn't fit the contest. It's not that he just doesn't fit the team. It's like he doesn't fit the match. So he embarks on little dribbles or does things and they they, they just seem like, it's like, you know, uh, switching to the comedy channel when you've been watching a serious drama I think, and it just brings you up short. I What, what, what? Why has he done that? Where's that going? I, his thought processes are peculiar. 
But I agree. Obviously, he has a lot of ability. It's just that when he chooses to turn it on and off, it just it's always slightly surprising. But I think Martinez has had the last laugh on all those people who said he's too blooming short. You couldn't have scored the goal he scored unless you were short. <laughs> <laughs> and it was and good in the air and good with your head yeah. as well. It was a lovely goal. Just very briefly on Martinez, I would say if we're talking about Manchester United in a very kind of open-minded way they lost a game against Arsenal but played quite well it's a nice it's a nice place to be to talk about Manchester United because we've not been at this point there was a lot that was admirable about United actually absolutely but I, I liked I um, think... Christian Eriksen I think he was unfairly criticised pardon for, what I was going to say there was unfair criticism towards Eriksen for the Saka goal what, what's unfair about it well I don't think it was his fault but because I think he was he was blocking and reading the game really well and it could have been a a huger scoreline than than it was if it hadn't been for him having concentration. I thought I thought he, I thought he had one of his better games actually in it, difficult circumstances. I don't blame Christian Eriksen, though in the position in the role that he was given for the match, he needs to be closer. But his teammates also need to help him because clearly you don't want to be one on one with Bukayo Saka if you're Christian Eriksen. But ultimately he's in that area of the pitch because needs must because Manchester United don't have enough quality in their squad. So Ericsson, being one of the few players who's able to put his foot on the ball and pass it, read the game intelligently, choose the right pass, which Manchester United didn't do for any of the goals and invited the pressure that ultimately led to them conceding on three occasions in the match. That's why he plays deeper in midfield, closer to his own goal. But we all know that the best Christian Eriksen isn't that player, wasn't that player at Brentford last season, wasn't that player obviously at Tottenham hasn't been that player for Denmark. We want to see Christian Eriksen closer to the opposition isn't goal. Isn't it admirable that he does a job no, that isn't it, his job it, well? It is, it is. But ultimately, in the position that he was given, you need to get tighter. Scott McTominay, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was doing. No. He just backs off and backs off and backs off. But I don't blame Christian Eriksen in that he's in a role that he shouldn't be in. But you've got to judge a player for the position that they've been given and the role that he was given. He's got to get tighter. Okay, so... Luke Shaw's in a one-on-one with Saka. Well, he's got to do better too. Well, I can slate all the. I can slate all the Man United players. You know, if you want, we'll do them one by one. You're on a one-on-one. That's a full-back's job mm-hmm. or wing-back, whatever position we want to say Luke Shaw was. He was nowhere near close enough, and he's on a one-on-one. Mm. You're paid to handle one-on-ones. Now, Ericsson being inside, and now he probably thinks, well. If I go inside, they're just going to slip the ball inside me. So I'm not going to just leave this area. So he's in an awkward position here. And Luke Shaw hasn't been beaten. You know, we haven't seen Saka go past Luke Shaw there. So then he's had to make a decision to try and make a challenge or or get be a bit closer to intercept the part, you know the ball from from uh, Saka. I didn't get what the commentary when Gary Neville was talking about getting closer. I'm saying he's only one one, Gary. That's your job all your career. As one on ones, you have to handle that situation and don't rely. If there's an overlap, if someone comes around the outside, like, you know, a mm. Ben White comes flying around the outside, there you've got a decision. Mm. Like, do I leave? Do I get closer to Sacco or do I let Luke Shaw take the runner? You know, so I thought it doesn't come any better for Luke Shaw that you're on a one on one with him. That's, yeah. that's to me the responsibility of the defender there. This is an interesting point, and I would I would like us to kind of keep on the healthy side of the Manchester United debate if we can, because I do think we've we, you know we've talked this was a, lots to admire about United, but I think Ericsson and this match is a good kind of subject for where United are at now mm-hmm. in this season. Christian Ericsson has been a great signing for Manchester United. He has, as Alison said, brought so much to their game. Is he 
the perfect fit in that role for these big games? No, I'm not sure he is. But the point is that Eric Ten Hag is like, I want to play this way and we're going to keep playing like this even if I've not got it quite right at the minute. Is Aaron Wan-Bissaka going to be his right back next season? I would be absolutely amazed, as proved by the second goal, which came from De Gea and Wan-Bissaka, who both aren't very good at playing the ball out from the back, Mm. playing the ball out from the back and losing the ball, as they did a couple of times. Then Arsenal get a corner, which they later score from. But it's the same kind of my way or the highway type attitude from Ten Hag that we saw with Klopp and Pep. And that, in turn, is why it's a good thing for Manchester United. You know, do they need another midfielder probably to play alongside Casemiro in these big games? I think so, yes. Do they need a right-back? Yes. Is Ten Hag going to keep going with what he believes, even if he's not got those things? Is he going to just go, I'm going to bring in Scott McTominay, even if I've not got Casemiro, I'm not going to change my whole system? Yes, because that's what he believes is, is the right thing, even if, in turn, it highlights the deficiencies that Manchester United have got. But I don't think that's a bad thing for United going forward. I think that shows a manager who knows what he wants and will get it in the end. Yeah, look, I think we saw two sides on a journey at very different points, much earlier stage for Manchester United and Eric Ten Hag. Um, And Manchester United have become a more solid team, but they're nowhere near in terms of the style of football that Ten Hag had with his Ajax team that got to the semi-finals of the Champions League, for example, which I think is one of the big plus points on his CV, if you like. Uh, in terms of managing a team like Manchester United and ultimately that's all, that's the kind of football that the fans will want to see because I kind of think that's the style of football that you need to play if you're going to win the title and I think Liverpool, Manchester City, even Arsenal now are showing us that you need your football needs to be at a very high level if you're going to trouble winning this title but I do, I do think it was kind of a reminder that Manchester United are very early on and it's going to take a few transfer windows for them to really be a side that was in the title race like I, I saw a few jokes and memes and whatnot about their title race being over and I, I guess we spoke about it on the last podcast or maybe I spoke about it on the radio but I kind of didn't want Manchester United to be spoken about as title contenders because for me they've got no chance of winning the title and you just don't want people to sit back and say almost they bottled it or you know they were in a title race for a month and then they, you know because they were never in it they're just not good enough and we saw that given the depth that Manchester United had off the bench the options that they had it's a big drop off um, for Manchester United so again it's just they need to get in the transfer market and improve the squad the only issue is you know you talk about Anthony the money spent on him Jaden Sancho where is he we're not sure but um, I think he's come back to training the money spent on on players like him Manchester United are in the business of wasting a lot of money over the last 5-10 years and I personally don't think that has changed much Um you know, I, I just don't see a club that knows what it's doing in, in terms of recruitment. Obviously, Arsenal have been fantastic with their recruitment and surprised us all. Uh, Manchester United are going to need a massive upturn. You look at some clubs in the Premier League, Brighton, Brentford, the level of recruitment is just so much better. Um, and a club like Manchester United, with the money that they've got, need to improve massively. You know, you can talk about Chelsea, for example. I'd rather be signing all their young players than some of the players that Manchester United have signed. You know, the pure potential of some of the players that Chelsea have brought in will come to them later, but you almost think that they might be on a road that might overtake Manchester but United. I, I get exactly why Tom said, can we can we stay on the optimistic side of the Man United chat, please? Because the journey they've been on, that 4-0 defeat at Brentford, it was appalling. And the, I think the, the sheer force of personality of Ten Hag to get you to the point where some people are saying maybe they're in the title race 
And I think that's I think so that's early. pretty phenomenal. Pretty phenomenal. Mm. And it does bode well. There'll be glitches. It's not perfect yet. It's it's a giant, almost unwieldy entity, Man United. And you've got the ownership possibly about to change and there's so much entrenched that is wrong with them. But to have come in and got them playing, I think, on the whole, quite attractive football of late. And I, it, you know, it, it was a great game, the game. It was a great game and it was a great game partly because of Man United. And I know, I know Ten Hag was disappointed with how they coped in the final minutes, up until then, it was ebb and flow, and you did think, oh, they could maybe get a draw out of this. It, it wasn't; they weren't so outclassed that you would think, as negatively as I think you're portraying it, Hughes. I think a lot of what you say, without you even knowing, is rooted in how it used to be, and what you're used to, and what you feel they should be. No, I reflect. No, no, no. I reflect positively on what's happened so far with Manchester United, but I don't think people should get carried away with. The, the process and the journey. I, I I said at the time Ten Hag came in, it was probably going to be three years. I still think that. I look at Manchester United and think for them to be even a team to really take seriously in terms of winning trophies, it'll be at least three years. And that's if everything goes to plan. Um, but the thing is, I think a lot of people were starting to think that Manchester United were a special team because they had such a good run. And they're very improved and much more solid team is giving them that basis and for year one you guys know I said all I wanted to see was a plan from Manchester United work rate commitment compared to what I've seen the previous seasons I'm very happy as a Manchester United fan because I've seen all of those things but you know people were going into this game this weekend thinking that Arsenal and Manchester United you know it's a, an even contest or they're on the same level Manchester United beat Manchester City and can they go and put another spell in the works for the title race I think it so if so if, if yeah. United have won if United have won yeah would you be saying oh, that's just a, that's just a blip it doesn't mean anything I mean look, well that's what I said after the City game I mean I don't think that meant anything so, so, how, how, so how many matches can they win and you say it doesn't mean anything no, but, no but because I think that ultimately the bigger picture is, for me, is that a Manchester United fan, is Manchester United getting back to the point where you think they're going to win Premier League titles, they're going to win Champions League trophies. What will it take for Manchester United to be that? The consistent, dominant style of football that we see other teams produce to win big trophies. So if we're winning it, winning games, playing on the counter-attack, for example, everyone said I was so harsh on Oli Solskjaer, finished second in the league, Manchester United, best performance in however many years since Ferguson had left but they played on the counter-attack. They didn't really dominate teams. They just used what they had with the speed of Martial, uh, Rashford and the like at the time, played on the counter-attack, didn't dominate teams, got results. Did it mean anything? No, it didn't. Didn't. There is no wider picture because they're never going to win the Premier League playing like that. And I'm not saying that this team's as bad as, as that one, but I'm saying they are very early on in terms of being a team that can do that. And it will take some very good players a lot of players to leave Manchester United and a number of transfer windows before they become that team. I'm not I'm not criticising them per se. I'm just saying that we saw this weekend that Manchester United have a way to go. I would love to be raving about them, but I think I'm very happy. I think they're going to finish in the top four. That's brilliant. That's exactly what I kind of expected from Ten Hag in the first year. But there is nothing, there's nothing much above that, is there? Well, yeah, is there? If you look at the two games... Uh, the one at Old Trafford, which Man United won 2-1, and they've lost 3-2. Um, again, Arsenal dominated quite a lot at Old Trafford, mm. but lost the game. Yeah. 
but there is a real there is quite a fine line between you know success and failure at times and i do feel like you and tom's being about optimistic i do see a lot more to like about manchester united mm. now than i would have done certainly in parts of last season even though there were still issues to challenge at the club oh. and certainly transfers have got to be you know yeah. they've got to be, and I, I, I look, and we talk about my. Uh, you talked about there with Hugh of his view of the past and what Man United. I played against Man United a few times, and they never ever played a style of other than come after you, home and away. They were coming out after you. They battled with you physically. This this team sort of do it, but not quite. You know, the, at the period of time you think we're well, not going to you're not going to bully Man United because their team just didn't allow you to. And they would come wave after attack, wave, and they would always play on the front foot. So I think that is a challenge for Ten Hag, but he comes from the era, era divisie. Era divisie is full of counter-attack football. I've words on it. Mm. And even the very best teams play with an attitude of counter-attack. You know, no one looked at his record in, in Europe with Ajax, really. You know, of, of okay, they're not meant to be rubbing shoulders with the very best teams in Europe. But they, for me, there has to be an emphasis on their style as well. Yeah. Listen, I, th I think it was a solid performance from Manchester United. I do think we saw the contrast between where the teams are. Arsenal are a brilliant side. They're the best team in the Premier League right now. It was a huge test for Manchester United. They've lost 3-2 with a very, very late goal and there were big positives to take from it. But I think when you look at the wider picture, a little bit more time, a little bit better recruitment, and then we'll see a pretty serious team. Anyway, that's what I'm hoping for as a Manchester United fan. Arsenal fans uh, will be delighted because their team is cruising towards uh, the title at this point in time. Absolutely brilliant. And we'll come on to Manchester City uh, in a while and Erling Haaland, whether he can help turn things around for them. Uh, but I just want to tell you, Tom Ulner has written about a man called Carlos Cuesta. He is the secret young coach behind Arsenal success. You can read that on the Times app right now, as well as the dissection of Manchester United this weekend. So make sure you download the Times app wherever you get your apps from. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Well, at the bottom this weekend, there was a huge win for West Ham United. Jared Bowen scoring twice to celebrate the fact that he's going to be having twins, his first goals in 13 games, as they beat another relegation threatened side in the shape of Everton. Now, as we talk... Frank Lampard is still the Everton manager, although like you, I imagine on this Monday morning, lots of rumours on the internet that Frank Lampard is going to be sacked by Everton. We shall see. Uh, but as we speak, I think one of the main things that we saw this weekend were protests against the chairman, Bill Kemright, the board, of course, the owner, Farhad Mashiri. Those were very clear and over protest. Mashiri actually attended the game that was his first Everton match for 14 months and so my question was going to be would Frank Lampard survive this but ultimately I think we should probably be talking as if he hasn't um, <laughs> because nine defeats in 12 league games 19th in the Premier League it's a it's a really weird one 
for a lot of fans, for a lot of people who love football, because you can't really tell how bad a job Frank Lampard is doing, given all of the noise that there is off the pitch, which clearly can't be helping, of course. But also the fact that it seems the club has been so badly mismanaged over the past few years that you wonder whether he's just been given such a hospital pass of a job that could there be a manager that would be doing a much better job than Frank Lampard? It's kind of hard for fans to tell. Like you, you hear rumours Sean Dyche might, might replace him, for example, and you think, yep, Sean Dyche, solid, experienced coach. But with all of the noise, with all of the issues at that football club, would he actually be doing a better job? I mean, anyway... I don't know where to start with this, but if Frank Frank Lampard loses his job, is that fair? I guess that's where we should start. Well, I, I think the reason we don't know yet is because of politics and the board have to work out. Is it a good deflection for them to say Frank Lampard has to go? Or could it backfire? And the fans who are already irate would say, oh, they still don't know what they're doing because it clearly isn't the manager's fault it's your fault not his fault what are you doing getting rid of him when he saved us last season and he clearly uh, feels and says the right things about being committed to Everton so it's it's a balancing act in terms of politically what you do do with Frank Lampard and the sad thing is that it's not got very little to do with football I think if you strip away the politics and it's hard to do that because it's it's really quite nasty at Everton at the moment Frank Lampard isn't doing a great job and I don't know that he's, and I, maybe I'm, it's wrong of me to say this, but I didn't feel he was the right type of manager to cope with the problems last season. I think he got lucky that the fans decided to make Goodison a fortress and they just got over the line. He got lucky with that. And so I would have liked to have seen him somehow move them on from that dreadful situation where they were very, very close to relegation. But it's, it's history repeating itself, which shows that he hasn't learned or found a way to move, progress them at least incrementally so that, you know, they're fighting for a mid-table slot instead of avoiding relegation. And is he is he got in his CV, other than the few moments last season at Goodison, has he really got it in his CV, that wealth of experience, that depth of experience to harness the talent at his disposal, which is limited, it is limited, and and there'll be a lot of sympathy for him having to work with the tools he's got. But it wasn't so very long ago we were saying, oh, you know, defensively, Everton are best in the league, they're really hard to score against, and once you've got that platform, you can develop the way you attack, whether you're at a counter-attacking team or want to be a bit more possession-based, but you've got that, that defence in place, and I you know, you look at the list of defenders he's got and they're good, a good goalkeeper, a highly rated goalkeeper, that there is a platform there and where he, if he is going to be sacked for a football reason, one reason would be well, that's evaporated, that platform's gone. Why haven't you been able to use that as a, a means of slowly, just slowly climbing the table and giving giving the fans something to cling to, a sense of there's a pattern emerging here. I just don't, you watch Everton, you're not entirely sure what you're going to get. They're either going to defend quite well or defend badly and that's it. It's a really weird one because there's been an excuse over every job he's had. Derby, 
Well, there was issues with finance. Well, certainly Frank didn't suffer for that finance problem at Derby because tomorrow coming from Chelsea, Mason Mount, Harry Wilson from Liverpool, Martin Wekhorn, um, then you could go Jack Marriott. They were spending quite heavily at Derby and finished sixth and got into the playoffs, which was okay, the same as what Gary Rowett did the year before. Um, so there wasn't much progress. Then you could argue, well, Chelsea was under an embargo, but Chelsea had an unbelievable squad and did Kovacic and Pulisic before, you know, uh, the embargo was put in place. Um, so there's always been a sort of an excuse to everything for Frank Lampard. Take his transfers in the last year or so, where you can look at, you know, Tarkovsky's come in, Conor Cody's come in on loan. You can say Dwight McNeil. Um, you could say... Deli Ali, probably one of the poorest transfers that has happened in the last year or so. Onana's done decently well. Mm. Uh, Gay has come in, hasn't he? Uh, from PSG that was a previously an Everton player. Then I would say, well, what's happened to Anthony, Anthony Gordon? You know, what happened to Tamori at Chelsea? He was discarded quite quickly. Anthony Gordon, okay, might have got his head turned. Chelsea and Tottenham are apparently interested and prepared to pay a decent fee for him. But he's now not even in... And, you know, he was part of the reason that, with Richarlison as well, you can add in two last year, that they stayed up. He he delivered and played really well in their running last year. Um, now, he's, now he's on the bench and not really being used much. It feels like a lot of strange dynamics are happening. Now, there's one problem upstairs, but you're not responsible for that as a manager. Yes, you might have your, you know, your hands tied to a certain level. I understand that. But they've played 41 games. Now, if you go 38 of them with Premier League games, they've only averaged just less than a goal a game. That's a poor return. He's brought in Mopay as well. You know, there, there's another transfer. Hasn't particularly worked really well for Everton. You know, so you, you have to dissect the numbers. And the numbers are, is a 27% win rate over them 41 games. So, I think he's lucky. I think he's a really lucky man to have had Derby, Chelsea and Everton. Okay, as his jobs. They're all really good job. Even with all the issues that Derby had, that was still a very attractive job mm. to have. And Chelsea, okay, again, you can mention Ibargo, but there was a hell of a squad there and there were clearly issues. So it feel, I, I keep thinking, you know, I look at managers and of the golden generations of, of sort and think, well, not many have been given three jobs like that. And none of them have been, a, you know, an overwhelming success where you've gone, wow, this is a complete change because of his management. If Everton, every, of everything, every one of them has sort of deteriorated as it's gone along. And I search where I see Everton at the moment. So the club have to make a decision on what he's done in them 41 games as a manager, not what's happened in the last six or seven of them that haven't won games. It's interesting. I think, Alison, you're almost right in that. Almost. Oh, what is that, 80%? <laughs> B plus? What is it? You're very right in that there's an, <laughs> uh, an element with the board's decision over Frank Lampard, um, meaning that if you remove him from the situation, how much more blame does the, the board get? How much more blame does the ownership get? Um, because obviously if there's another manager that comes in that's not a success at Everton, you know, how many more managers can you can you keep recycling before obviously people want change in that area? So in that regard, it is very political. And I agree with you, Tony, in terms of Lampard's jobs and in terms of what's happened at Everton, there's a clear underperformance as well. So I'm not saying that you're wrong, and I'm saying that both of you have created the full picture for me, both correct in your own ways. Um 
would it be unfair then, Tom, to get rid of Frank Lampard for you? Because for me, the only thing that I would say in his defence is lots of the fans were on his side. Lots of the fans wanted him there. He did keep them in the Premier League last year. And to be perfectly honest, we all thought for a long period of time that Everton were going to go down. And maybe it's just because it's the name of Everton and the fact that they've stayed in the Premier League that, that we're so accustomed to that we almost didn't give him credit for that. Had he been the manager of a Burnley and kept them in the Premier League, we'd all be saying, wow, what a job he's done, despite the fact that the squads were comparable in talent for me. Maybe Richarlison, the main difference. Obviously, Burnley went down to the Championship. But I'm just using them as an example. You know, I, I do think... It's a very bad situation at Everton and Lampard is pretty much, in my opinion, doing as as well as he could. Maybe five, six points better would be, we'd all be saying he's doing really, really well. I know it sounds weird, but that, that's, that's it for me. I think it's a difficult one. I, I, like Tony, have had a similar view of Lampard and his managerial career in general. Um, I've never been particularly impressed tactically. I'm not sure if he's ever shown anything particularly uh, interesting or uh, challenging. I think it's fascinating that the one thing he's maybe done at any point in his Everton managerial career is kind of make them quite tough to beat for a brief period at the start of this season. Uh, Nil-nils and one-nils and things and we thought, okay, maybe there's a bit of a basis here. But I think to answer your first question, given the run of form that they're in at the minute and given the mood around the club, yes, it is fair to sack Frank Lampard. Um, I can see what you're saying in the terms of them putting it in the broader context. But I think part of that then comes back to Frank Lampard. And one of the things that he does well is he talks a good game and he has quite a slick, good persona when it comes to managerial PR, which I think is an increasingly important part of modern day management. And when it comes to getting jobs, um, Alison alluded to the relationship with the fans and how important that was last season. He deserves credit for that. But ultimately, it was the fans that made Goodison the fortress, not Frank Lampard. Um, and I think that's part of it now why... Hugh, you are kind of slanting your questions in that way. It's to do with Frank Lampard and being Frank Lampard. I don't, you, we can flip your point on its head about, oh, he's got a difficult situation. I think if you flip it on its head, other managers don't get the leeway that Frank Lampard is getting. I don't, I genuinely don't think that. If, you know, if it was a manager from Europe who isn't familiar with English football and isn't a well known name, I think he would have been gone a few games ago. Um, but fo folding all that in, um, the kind of the status of him as Frank Lampard and the nature of Everton at the minute and the board and where where this goes in terms of mood it is fascinating when you look at the next two games that they've got because they're home to the runaway league leaders super duper Arsenal on Saturday the 4th of February and then they've got Liverpool and you wonder whether you know the, the, the kind of board are looking at that and going well if we keep him and they get hammered in both those games then surely no one can have a go at us if we sack him but then you, there's the other thing of well if we keep him and they get hammered that'll be about as low a point as we can be for the squad there's all sorts of these I think Everton have become so embroiled in fascinating like off pitch mood momentum type situations where it's no wonder that the football is coming completely secondary and it means that whoever it is whether it's a Frank Lampard or whether it's a kind of even a David Moyes type character, they've got an incredibly difficult job on their hands because there's so much more going on. And yeah, Lampard said it himself, didn't he? It was interesting listening to his comments after the match talking about, you know, clubs go down and they come back again. You almost wonder whether he and others at the club are thinking, 
maybe it'd be better for us if we did go down and kind of regroup and reformulate what we're supposed to be at a club as disastrous as that may seem for Everton you do wonder whether there's that part of the thinking going on at all oh god they, they can't possibly go down and, and, and in any way that be a good thing I mean, do you know when West Ham got the London Stadium and everyone was saying but what do you do with that if you're in the championship you get you get 15,000 people going and everyone rattles around and it's just embarrassing you can't have Everton with their spanking brand new which, and, and the board have put everything into this you know they, they make answers doesn't matter what the question is you know how much is the price of milk board you know they go we're going to have a wonderful stadium on the waterfront that's their answer to every question is they're going to have this wonderful stadium you can't have that in the championship they need they really need maybe in some other cases it could be good for a club to go down rebuild but not in this case it would just be a complete disaster mm. I I find it very difficult to talk about this without taking my ex-player and respect hat off because it's difficult because I just think he's been given that silver spoon of jobs and the bottom line is you have to show that you're capable of being a manager and rubbing shoulders with some of the best managers or coaches in the game. And I don't see that. I don't see a manager making, as Tom said, decisions that think, tell you what what a good call that was I see a lot of bad calls and I've mentioned a number of them just about recruitment and players because he would have played a big part in that about who he brought in because the club liked to back managers I, 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 listen I, I thought about this at the weekend and thought surely Frank Lampard's calling Chelsea and getting a few on loan if he can if there's any money at Everton to get some players in on loan he needs a big favour right now from his, his former club and surely there's players in that squad you've seen so many signings at Chelsea we're going to need a bit of football you think could could make a big, big difference, even though it costs you, you say, might cost you five million quid. Hugh, you know a lot of people in football and he's played under some very good coaches. You know, you think even, well, is there anybody at Roma that I could speak to Jose about? Yeah. Could you do me a favour and give me somebody, you know, that might help me out in a certain position? You know, you know a lot of people. It's not like he just knows the club Chelsea. He would have crossed paths with many people in the game. Mm. Now, that hasn't happened. You know, I, I didn't get... When Deli Alley was signed, I was really... I didn't understand that transfer at all because maybe he's thinking a bit of inspiration, somebody who could give a side different, who could... Be, I, I can get him right, the ego, I can get him right. Well, literally after five minutes, <laughs> he's known he's made a mistake. Yeah. Well, you can't be doing that in management. You can't be literally going, oh, well, sorry, but he's not, he's not trying, he's not doing it. Well, surely you should have known all that, all these problems before you got him. Um, so, look, it, it, it's very difficult to be positive. I'd love to say something po positive. Is it getting Connor Cody on loan that worked out for a period of time? Uh, Tarkovsky on a free transfer? Yeah, OK, he's done re didn't have a particularly good game. I thought Paul Clement as assistant coach, and I feel like I'm being really sticking bins in him here, but <laughs> anyone who knows Paul Clement knows it's possession-based football. And what did they do on the weekend? Possession-based out sort of had the ball more than West Ham, but no purpose, no product of even looking like scoring. 68% possession. Ridiculous. Five shots in the game, which is a really bad conversion rate, if you like. That kind of sums up where Everton are right now. Just got to say, though, positives for West Ham United. Tom, the first Premier League win in three months for David Moyes and the club. How big is it? It's huge because we talk so much about Everton there and all the problems that we've got going on. 
you wonder whether Martin Samuel last week wrote a column about the only problem is if they, if uh, David Moyes leaves at West Ham, then uh, West Ham will need to hire David Moyes. You look at Everton and think he's about the only person that you could think of who might be able to turn them around. But that comes from a point of where West Ham were, as Alison said, in a similar position to Everton. So I think a lot of their fans know they didn't want they didn't want Moyes to go. They wanted him to turn it around, but they've been on this kind of transformational journey a little bit this season. Um, but even then, it was interesting to see Antonio start up front, Bowen get the goals, and it was a bit like, okay, we signed all these players, but maybe I just need to go back to what we know best um, against a poor side to get a win. I, but momentum is key if they can get keep getting points and turn it around. I think Moyes will still be there at the end of the season. And I think crucially for him, Everyone at West Ham wants that. I remember listening to Matt Lawton on the show recently who said it'll be difficult for him if he loses to Everton, but that ultimately everyone at the club um, in terms of the hierarchy and I know quite a few West, uh, West Ham fans and they all want Moyes to stay as well. They want him to succeed. So that's the most significant thing for Moyes, but he needed this win to get that backing for sure. And he got to me, I mean, a surprising addition in the shape of Danny Ings um, because there aren't that many players who can put the ball in the back of the net. I know he's not a prolific striker, but he's a decent finisher and you just think, you know, a club like Aston Villa who have lofty ambitions would need a player like that. The, the fact that they let him go to West Ham United, I mean, that, again, in terms of the relegation battle, signing a player like that is a big coup for David Moyes. Especially as uh, Mike Lampard want to. Mm. Yeah, and if you, and it was interesting these comments, David Moyes, about Danny Ings and just saying that he wanted someone with Premier League experience of getting goals and sort of an indication that Skamaka had come in and yes, he's it's been a difficult first season for him and oh. that we need to go back to tried and trusted in this particular league and I, I thought that was the interesting part and you you can sort of trust Danny Ings to deliver not a huge amount of goals but maybe five before the end of season six or seven that will be enough to... Am I yeah. being unfair? I, my memory of... King's career is that he always does well to start with the new club. He does hit the ground running and looks quite promising, and then it fizzles out every time. Okay, well, that doesn't well, that doesn't that doesn't make it a bad signing. It makes it a good signing. Oh no, I'm just saying it doesn't match with my recollection. That's well, I think Southampton <laughs> was pretty, you know, was but pretty it never, decent for he never went on an upward trajectory. No, I look. He started well, and then it was yeah, either I mean, either dull or. Disappointing. Well, if you take his Liverpool uh, time, was very mm. short-lived and also it had injuries. a couple of bad yeah. injuries. You know, two ACLs he suffered and time he got to Southampton, he sort of reignited himself and then at Villa, you're right, probably at Villa, he did get goals early on. But I do think it's a type of signing that David Moyes is very comfortable in, thinking, I like his work ethic. It gives me something for other players to think about. And... And I think you can. There's a lot to be said for that when you're fighting relegation uh, to have a certain character come into yeah. your dressing room. You know, it's quite well known that David Moyes has always been a manager that's probably overthinking every transfer. He's sort of done that all his career, and he, it's one of the criticisms that many aim at him that he probably takes too much information on board instead of going with your gut feeling of right, oh, he'll do well for me. I'm really, I can see it. I need that. Um, but I do think it's a, a very thought out and intelligent transfer for make West Ham 
uh, have a better forward line in some capacity. Yeah, I think Mestam United will be safe. I think there's going to be three worse teams than them, but it's a great result for them to build on, albeit against one of the worst teams in the Premier League anyway. Uh, Danny Ings in at West Ham United, proven quality, proven in the Premier League, but not on the level of a certain Erling Haaland, we have to say. <laughs> for those who thought he was the problem, uh, well, he answered you this weekend, didn't he? Scoring all the goals, uh, a hat-trick in Manchester City's 3-0 win at home to Wolves. He's got 25 league goals in 19 appearances. This is the kind of thing that you 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 you, you dream of, you fantasize about. You say like, could you imagine if a player came to the Premier League one day, they scored fifty goals? Uh, you know, like it just wasn't fathomable before he came to this country and joined this team. Um, who, by the way, have scored seven goals in their past two games, Manchester City, since we've last spoken, including that comeback win over Spurs. So maybe they are finding another gear, Manchester City, which they certainly did in the second half last Thursday at the Etihad, I was there. But ultimately, if Erling Haaland is in this kind of form, you might not need to find another gear as a team. He might just fire you to the mm -hmm. title. He might fire you to catch up with Arsenal. Um, I'm not sure about them yet. Anyway, I'll ask you guys, rather than try and answer all my own questions. Firstly, Tony, how good's Haaland? For the 10th time this season, by the way, asking this <laughs> Well, what do you say when someone's got everything? You know, if you're six foot five and you're a very athletic player and you're blessed with a great turn of pace and he's very direct as well. He's sort of got the qualities of many players. You know, I like his directness with Shearer and the, the header he got on Saturday, he was I like a Les Ferdinand and Shearer, Shearer type of header. And then you see the finishes that he'll, he'll instantly see the ball to be it first time. He'll take a touch when he needs to and he'll hit it first time when he thinks it's on as well. He seems to have great decision making. I mean, I laughed when I, you know, I, I, I was here in the our city. I remember reading an article last weekend, and a journalist said, uh, "You know, is Haaland a problem?" I'm thinking, really, just put him on the transfer market and see how big of a problem is, because there'll be everybody who'd want to take him. You know, because he will deliver goals at a regular rate and all types of goals. And I think having De Bruyne doing the sort of passes he can. You don't need him involved in every moment of every game. This is not a dribbler. This is not a guy that's going to do amazing magic. He's just going to be incredibly effective, and that's his strengths. Yeah. Wolves weren't very good, and Spurs weren't very good in the second half. And it's become a bit of a joke, a bit of a meme now, isn't it? Oh, you know, Erling Haaland's the problem, but look at his goal rate. I still think he is a problem for City. I still think City have to think about things they didn't used to have to think about. They were highly well-oiled machine and they've put in something that's almost too good in a way an individual that does his job too well which means because you've got a superstar who's such a great finisher and as you say Tony can do all types of finishing you're, you're duty bound to find him but that isn't the way they used to play they were never duty bound to find one particular player was Lionel Messi that though for Barcelona under Pep? No, but he no. He was, that, that's a that, it was a duty that is, to give him the ball. Yeah, but, that's, but then he that's would, what they did. He just, but then he created with it. Hmm. Haaland doesn't get involved. He does 
His touches are just goals, basically, aren't they? Well, he has a number of assists, which he's already had this season. I can't give you the exact number, but no, he has created goals. But there's still one touch. He doesn't. He's not. He doesn't dwell on the ball and create a vibe from his play um, the way that Messi did. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't compare the two at all. No, I'm comparing them that you are. You know, you're having to give the ball to a certain individual as much as you can. I mean, Barcelona. You give the ball, give the ball to Haaland on the halfway line. He's not going to do what Messi would do. It's a different type of give the ball to situation. No, we well, basically not... want to get a cross in, so yeah. he heads it in or volleys it in, don't you? I would say that you're trying to give him balls in certain situations that you know that he's in front of goal, yes. And that, isn't, and that isn't what City did. That isn't what City used to do. City never felt... The whole point of Pep They've at given, City is... Kevin De Bruyne they are, they are the Borg from Star Trek. They are an entity. Anyone can score a goal. It doesn't matter who scores the goal because we like the way we got there with precision... But intelligent, would've... intense football. And now they're having to think differently. He is amazing, but it does affect the personality of City. He, he, if he gets what he wants, City won't have the ball as much, which is what we've seen from them for so many seasons in terms of that pressurising you into your own half, monopolising possession from side to side, short passes, a high tempo, which I think is one of the reasons and one of the things Pep Guardiola pointed out about them not being at their absolute best, that their tempo intensity isn't quite there, even calling on the fans to bring a bit more fire at the Etihad. But um, but during the match, you're watching Erling Haaland and he wants the, the service to be quite direct. He's constantly running in behind, pointing in behind. And we're talking about when his team has the ball kind of halfway in their own half. He's saying, well, I can make this run deep, you know, a 30, 40 yard run. You just need to find me on a 50 yard path. You know, he wants the ball and he always wants the ball. And he always wants the ball in behind. Coming short, he's done a little bit more. We were, we heard the stories at the start of the season, you know, games that he was going through seven, eight, nine touches. Now his number's kind of averaging up at around mid-20s. But ultimately, as I read in the Times, uh, last year their forwards were averaging, averaging mid-50s in terms of touches during a game. There is a different style when it goes into the final third for City. And I think when it clicks with Haaland, it looks brilliant. He scores loads of goals because he is that quality. But um, in terms of wearing the opposition down, in terms of that feeling that City are just going to pin you back for the whole game, I don't think you feel that. Even if you look at Spurs' first two goals last week, totally against the run of play, if you like, but it was kind of easy to break on on City and it was easier to win the ball back from City. Hold it, one of them goals was... Edison just passing in his own 18-yard box. That, you can't relate that to Erland Haaland and the style of play. No, but... That's a goalkeeper who's passed it five yards to the the midfielder (laughs) that's been robbed of the ball. But I think the energy to get forward and press wasn't there when City just ran you into the ground, particularly at the end of a half of football. The idea that your forwards were going to, you know, break from your own half, press the goalkeeper, that didn't happen. Why is anyone putting pressure on at the edge of Man City's box when they've had 70, 75% possession at half. Because they don't really, they have sort of mid-50s now. Matt, Hugh, maybe there's more teams that are prepared to press City than it was last season. Newcastle at St James's Park did exactly that when they drew 3-3. They went after City, high up the pitch, and no one had really done that. Enough. Liverpool have done it because they were capable of doing it. Arsenal are certainly doing it this year. There's other clubs who are going after City higher up the pitch. I would say that's the reason why they're conceding more goals and being robbed of possession because they are not allowed to play the game that they wanted to. Too many teams allowed them to do that. Burnley kept getting beaten 5 0 by, by Man City. And I used to think, why don't you just try something else? Maybe try and take the game further up the pitch to them. 
because they tried to just sit there and counter. And I think this team have tried to play City further up the pitch this year. I think it'll be interesting to see if City's can stay in, what, gear five now? They're up to gear five? Still got gear six to go. Maybe a supercharged seventh gear as well <laughs> if they want it. <laughs> But, um, but I, in a world where we all know there are 86 gears, that's not very fun, <laughs> is it? But you know what I mean? I think they are stepping it up a little bit off the rhetoric of Pep Guardiola. You saw that this weekend, particularly as they didn't start the game that well and there were kind of groans, maybe personal groans, that they weren't frustrations on the pitch, that they weren't playing as well. But as soon as they kind of relaxed, you know, they did go up through the gears. Yes, it was Wolves who didn't play particularly well. And yes, they had a couple of chances on the break, the likes of Pedence, for example. It'll be intriguing to see what we see on Friday in the FA Cup, Manchester City against Arsenal, which we'll look ahead to um, in terms of what Guardiola gives away. Because he doesn't like to give things away, particularly when you've got two games against your title rivals in the league to come. But anyway, Erling Haaland continues to impress. What are you going to put a number on it now? Sweepstake? How many is he going to get? 43 plus. Choose a number. It's a sweepstake. Okay. (laughs) 43. Alison? 46. 46. Tom? Oh, uh, do you know what? 49, why not? Uh, <laughs> quickly, on just on numbers, I think I'm not going to start uh, getting involved in the Haaland problem debate, but mm. from the wonderful world of Bill Edgar this morning, just to take your statistic even further, Hugh, uh, about Haaland being the fastest to 25 top-flight goals, the last person to do it in 20 games, not 19 games, was Fred Geary for Everton in eight. 1889 90 season. <laughs> that was one hell of a season. So there you go. Uh, I'm pretty sure Everton could do with a Fred Geary right now, but there you go. That puts Haaland's achievement in context. Fred the Geary. last person to do it with 20 games was Fred Geary. And then Huey Gallagher for Newcastle also did it in 1925-26. They both did it in 20 games. Haaland's done it in 19. Absolutely unbelievable. Very quickly before we go, we've got to talk about it. For many people, the game of the weekend, you know, two big teams, Liverpool and Chelsea. Wow, what a game. What a game it was. That golden draw at Anfield left some people I saw surprised by the rhetoric of Jurgen Klopp after the game, who seemed quite optimistic um, about where Liverpool are right now. Um, yeah, raised a few eyebrows. Um, but also, that being said, Graham Potter's Chelsea weren't much better. It was a game which showed us all exactly why these two teams currently sit in mid-table. What did we learn about them, Alison? Well, we did learn that, you know, wake up, everyone. The table does not lie, does it? That was exactly what you'd expect from two teams challenging for ninth. And it was kind of spooky for that reason, because there was that residual hope that because it was a big team, a big rival going to Anfield, this is this is going to kick it all up. This is going to kick it. This is going to kickstart it. It's going to be amazing. This is where it all this is where it all changes. And it it didn't because they were two poor, relatively poor teams operating at I don't know what percentage of what they're capable of, thirty percent maybe. It was. It was drab and it was, I don't blame Klopp for saying that positive things. That's his job, isn't it? It's his job. And I think if you look very closely, you can always find positive stuff. Because it, it's mid-table, not a relegation battle. There will be good stuff going on there. But I, I mean, I, I, there was a Liverpool fan on a sofa near me who just kept going, I want Jota back. Want Diaz back. And when they're back, it'll be better. But I don't, I'm, I don't see either team... Locking on top four door at the moment. Tend to agree. What do you make of it? 
Well, it was. I mean, strange watching Liverpool, especially in the first half, not close down from forward areas, watching Gakpo, Salah and Harvey Elliott. And I understand, I understand it's a completely different front three. And, but they're sitting off. And the only time they attempted was the first 20 minutes of the second half where they went more attack-minded from the forward areas to get at the back line of Chelsea. And it wasn't very good. And Liverpool are struggling in the way they're playing. You can hear the groans and misplaced passes. Likewise for Chelsea. Chelsea, until Mudrick came on, there wasn't much about Chelsea either, who were quite comfortable, you know, playing a very slow tempo to their game. And, you know, time-wasting early on, you know, just taking forever to take goal kicks. And, and it was just a weird game in, in many ways because these two have, you know, huge success in the last couple of decades as football clubs. And... um they're a shadow of their, their former selves in many ways. I feel a little bit more optimistic about Chelsea at the moment because I think the signings are young that will come in. I do think there's an emphasis but on a different style. But I do think Graham Potter's going to have to play a different way and that means to be a lot more braver and on the front foot because it's very attack-minded, attack, counter-attack-minded. So they've fallen away quite dramatically. I mean, Liverpool's point total to last year, they're way off that. You can say, does a season come at a cost long-term? And Liverpool feel like that to me as a club. They paid a huge price for what they achieved last year. Pre-season being affected slightly. I'm making excuses for them, but they just don't feel what Liverpool fans have been spoilt with the last, certainly, three or four seasons. Yeah, it's tough for both of these sides at the moment. For Liverpool specifically, Tom, I wonder if they should change their approach. Should they change their tactics? Would Jurgen Klopp ever do that? It's an interesting one when you think about the signings of um, Gakpo and Alisson's reference to certain fans wanting Jota and the like back that they do seem a little bit caught between a switch uh, in in style and uh, and tactics. But I would say if they're going to do that, I don't know whether the guys would agree with me, they need at least one big signing in midfield. If you think about the teams in the Premier League, Manchester City have got the best midfielder in the world in Kevin De Bruyne. Arsenal's team has largely been built on that Midfield three, Odegaard, Xhaka and Partey. Manchester United have improved by signing Casemiro. Liverpool's midfield to me, for quite a while actually, has felt like a real weak link. You know, the players in there have all got different issues, whether it's injury, whether it's form, um, whether it's just getting a bit older in the case of Jordan Henderson. But to me, that's the area. If you're going to get that front line to fire, whether it's in the old guys of... Salah and the Jotters of this world or whether it's in the new formation of Nunes and Gakpos they need a, they need midfield um, to start firing and they probably need to do that by signing someone and let's not start talking about Jude Bellingham well, I think Tom's spot on with the midfield and there's a lot of hope that Nunes will be a player next year after having one year in the Premier League Oh do you think he'll learn what offside is by then? <laughs> well, he's yeah. He, he loves to play on the shoulder. I mean, it was I mean, the, but the most outstanding feature of the game, and say apart from Mudrick coming on, was the form of Thiago Silva. I just think he's. There was a moment in the game when you, we all know how quick Nunes is, and he got half a yard, and Thiago Silva was with him, thinking he's thirty-seven. Watching someone of that quality just play football and look quite comfortably the best centre half on the pitch by a country mile. Um, just as a testament of how good a player he is. I had read to think what situation Chelsea would be in if he wasn't fit every week. Mm. Yeah, been absolutely mainstay for them. He's been up there with the very best I've seen in the Premier League, that's for sure. Tough times for Liverpool and Chelsea. I agree with you, Alison. I don't think either of these sides is going to trouble the top four. But 
who knows we're pretty much at the halfway mark of the season half of the teams at the halfway mark some have played a game more but a uh, long way to go and it feels like things are already settled surely there are going to be many more twists and turns anyway thank you for uh, joining us on this Monday morning Tony Cascarino Alison Rudd and Tom Clark and to all of you for listening make sure you check out the game at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game pick up a paper download the app and we'll see you on Thursday Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.